Second uh, Peter chapter two is where we pick up where we left off. We are going verse by verse through the New Testament. We find ourselves this morning in the book of Second Peter, in the middle of some intense and fiery words in the chapter uh, chapter two. So while you're settling in on chapter two, we're going to pick up at verse ten b. The second part of verse 10 is where we pick up. I'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, with these very intense words, uh, perhaps the most serious in all the gospel, uh, we find ourselves um, wrestling and listening to very uh, harsh words for those who um, misrepresent you and Father, we pray that the truths that we see in your word would uh, place the fear of the Lord in our own hearts that will bless us and keep us from evil. Uh, Help us to uh, open our hearts and receive what the Holy Spirit is saying to us through this passage of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as most of you know, the theme of 2 Peter is a dire warning to believers to watch out for false teachers who the devil has used for centuries to shipwreck people in their faith, to point them to hell instead of to heaven. Peter's been describing them, their teaching, and their terrible destiny, the judgment of God. Uh, To help us pay attention to our doctrine, the word doctrine just means teaching, um, because it's important what you're listening to as far as uh, Bible study and spiritual truths, or to whom you are listening. That's very important. Peter, um, Paul rather, tells Timothy, watch your life and your doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It really matters what you believe. And they had to pay careful attention um, and take a stand because the false teachers with their crazed ideas were everywhere. Fake pastors and phony evangelists. Uh, People's faith were being shipwrecked. Churches were being split. Entire households were being upset. Uh, Impressionable people led astray down the wrong path that leads to destruction. Uh, These men, just so you know that when you hear the fiery words, you get a sense of why there's such indignation from the Lord to those who misrepresent him. You have to understand how grave the crimes that they're committing are. They are exploiting vulnerable people, milking them out of their money, their homes, their pensions, uh, living immorally, hypocritically, indecently, making up stories, masquerading as men of God, changing the truth of God for a lie and telling people what they want to hear instead of teaching them the truth. By definition, false teachers, as we've talked about, are men who, by their immoral lifestyle, that's inconsistent with a holy transformation, born of the Spirit, or by doctrine that denies the essentials of Orthodox Christianity, like the deity of Christ, his death and resurrection that provides for our sins, or the salvation that comes through him and faith alone in him, 
or that the Bible is God's inspired word. These kinds of truths, when you mess with those truths, you don't have Christianity any longer. We're not talking about uh, disagreeing on matters that uh, are non-essentials, like how to govern a church or women's role in ministry or whether the gift of tongues is for today or not. We're not talking about that. We're talking about if you uh, present something that, that is a deal breaker, you don't have the, the original anymore because the, the tenants, the pillars of that thing have been taken away. That's what we're talking about. So as we approach to pick up this fiery denunciation of these false teachers, you know, know this, the Lord said through Jeremiah in chapter 14, he says, I don't know who these guys are. They're false prophets. They are prophesying and speaking lies in my name. I have not sent them. I do not know them. I haven't appointed them or spoken to them. They are making things up, false visions, divinations, idolatries, and delusions of their own minds. That's through Jeremiah. And that's really a prototype of what we have in the New Testament church and today all around us. And so we're going to take a look at this He's warning them. He's saying, I want you to make it to heaven uh, in one piece. I want you to have a rich, warm welcome there. I don't want you to get caught up and entangled and have your Christian effectiveness hindered or a life uh, that's not blessed, but hindered because you're believing a lie. As you think, so is your life. I mean, uh, it's so important to, to believe the truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. And the truth will set you free. But if you don't know the truth, your heart cannot be set free. So it's pretty important. So verses 1 to 10 to bring you up to snuff. Some of you are, don't have the, um, uh, haven't had the benefit of being with us for the last two Sundays. And so 1 through 10 said, these guys are driven by greed and immoral passions. Uh, they will use deceit. They will look good on the outside. They will talk a smooth talk. Jesus said, uh, watch out, they come to you as wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they look good on the outside. They look like one of us. In fact, the Bible says they will arise from within your own circles. So beware. And he says, many will follow their shameful ways and bring the truth into disrepute. Now we are at verse 10b. We're going to finish the whole chapter and just walk through it uh, three chunks at a time, all right? I mean, uh, we're going to finish up the uh, chapter and look at three paragraphs, one at a time. Here's the first paragraph, actually, verses 10 through 12. So he's describing them now still. Bold and arrogant. These men are not afraid to slander celestial beings. Yet even angels, although they're stronger, more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord. But these men blaspheme in manners that they don't understand. They are like brute beasts, creatures of instinct born only to be caught and destroyed. And like beasts, they too will perish. So if you're taking notes, Roman numeral number one, these, these men are arrogant. <laughs> now, 
Peter is describing one particular group of many kinds of false teachers and teachings that uh, really assaulted the early church. But this group in particular now, he's just calling out and saying, this is a soundbite of some of these guys. This is what I'm talking about. He says that they are characterized by pride and an arrogant false sense of spiritual power. One commentator said they are drunk on the wine of self-admiration. Here is a um, paraphrase of what I just read to you. Haughty and puffed up, these men talk smack to demons slandering fallen angels, spiritual authorities and heavenly places that dwarf them in power and strength. Holy angels wouldn't even do that. And so the word here, bold, in the Greek means reckless daring. These are men that are unafraid to blaspheme not only God and his word, but demons, fallen angels as well. There's no fear of God in them. The word, your NIV, has slander. They're not afraid to slander. Blasphemeo in the Greek, to disrespect, to discount, to insult. So they were, quote, in your text, slandering celestial beings. Now, how were they doing that? Well, commentators offer a few explanations. Number one, they were taunting and belittling the devil and his angels. They were either uh, denying their existence or they were mocking the possibility that their sins would put them at the mercy of such evil beings. Or they were boasting in their own power over them. The point is that they were more free with their language than the angels are. Jude, in a parallel passage to this, said that Michael, the archangel, doesn't even talk directly to the devil. He goes around indirectly to the Lord. I like what one uh, writer said, men ought to reserve their prayers and petitions to the Lord alone. Nowhere are we invited to speak to those who have departed this life or to angels or to the devil himself. Rebuking evil and coming against evil powers in the heavens is God's job alone. The Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation. Lord, you deliver us from the evil one. Rather than us speaking to the devil himself, which no doubt you have seen in arrogance others do. I'm not judging the destiny of their souls, but I'm saying to say devil is a no-no. That is not your place. That is arrogant and ignorant, says the Bible. So we say, our Father, <laughs> we entrust to you the issues of the heavenlies. We don't take that into our own hands. He says, Peter goes on to say, uh, they're senseless. That's an example of what they're doing. They're, they don't even understand how arrogant and boastful that is. They're like animals, he says. Um, brute beasts, the word for, for brute beasts in the Greek there is without reason. They can't think. They're like, and he calls them. He says, you know what? They're just like animals. 
They don't have the ability to discern. They're up strutting around like a proud peacock up there with Bibles and podiums and lights, action and camera, and they don't understand a word that they're talking about because they're not plugged into the truth or to the Lord. They are like animals who are dominated and driven by their sinful passions alone. No spiritual discernment whatsoever. Pit bulls. They will lick your hand and they will kill your baby. There are an animal. Animals go into heat without any moral consideration whatsoever. They are like animals. They take what doesn't belong to them like animals do. I was playing tennis with Pastor Nathan and our tennis ball went over the fence and onto the green area, the little meadow. And a golden retriever came and took my tennis ball <laughs> that I had just bought. The owner came over, tried to get it out of the mouth. It wouldn't let go. And then finally, it ejects it out of the mouth. She picks it up. It's covered in golden retriever goo. <laughs> and she hands it to me. And I said, you know what? That's a gift from me to you. <laughs> An animal. Wait, what are you going to do? Spank the dog and say, bad? Oh, yes, she did. It's a bad dog. That doesn't belong to you. But animals don't care. <laughs> they don't care. So what is Peter saying? These guys don't care that it's not their money, that it's the widow's pension, that, oh, send me $10,000, and God will give you your dreams come true. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's an animal. Give me. I want that. I don't care that it doesn't belong to me. That's what he's saying right here. And then he says, and verse 12, and like certain animals, they just seem to be destined to be caught and killed. Now, the free-range chicken is living in a dream world. Oh, I'm a free-range chicken. <laughs> oh, I've got all of this land to roam, and look at all this organic grain that I just feast and feast, and they keep giving it and giving it and giving it and giving me all this open space. You're living in a dream world, chicken. Because it's just a matter of time before there's an appointment with the buyers from KFC. <laughs> you were born and bred and you exist to be caught and destroyed and served up on a platter. And Peter says through the Holy Spirit, those are these guys. They exist to be destroyed and caught because they won't turn from their sins and be saved. What can God do with a guy like that? Except convict him and convict him and convict him. Television evangelist boasts embezzling a fortune, hiring prostitutes in between taping the services. Bold, reckless, daring. Peter says, live like an animal, die like one. Verses 13 through 16. They will be paid back with harm for the harm they've done. Their idea of a good time 
or pleasure is to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their pleasures while they feast with you. With eyes full of adultery, they never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They're experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Beor, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, a beast without speech, who spoke with a man's voice and restrained the prophet's madness. And so, Roman numeral number two of three points, these men will be paid back. So now the Holy Spirit kind of glows red through this apostle's righteous indignation. Peter revisits a consistent theme of his letter, divine retribution for those who continue in rebellion and sin. They will be paid back for their arrogance, their lust, and their greed. Now, he's going to say, and here's why they'll be paid back. So he goes on to uh, further... uh, delineate what exactly they're doing. They, uh, not only are they daring and bold to walk around with open scriptures, with their black robes or whatever, their platforms, they just don't have any sense of fear of God. Not only are they daring and bold, but they can't even turn off the lust machine in church and worse, in communion. When it says there in your text that they feast among you, carousing at that feast, Jude, in his parallel passage, makes it clear that the feast there is what was called the agape feast, the love dinner, which we really have even today. It's a communion. Now, it was very much like a home fellowship group where communion was served but they had a big dinner and they celebrated and, and, they, and it was like a banquet and it was called the love feast. And these guys, well, let me read a paraphrase. These guys' idea of having a good time is to hit on women during communion service. They are a terrible stain on Christianity with their insatiable desire for sexual immorality. And so at communion, like the Corinthians, who got out of hand with the wine at the love feast, and in fact, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul said, by the way, getting drunk at communion time, at home fellowship communions, he said, that's a big no-no. He said, Paul saying to them who were doing it, he said, have you guys noticed that a bunch of you are dying suddenly? Um, That would be because you are going to communion and getting drunk. And that wasn't the only thing they were doing when they were getting drunk. They called it a love feast. So the Gnostics came in and said, hey, look, you're just like us. And the other pagan forms of worship always combined sex in their worship. They had shrine prostitutes. You guys are calling this a love feast. There's communion. There's wine. And there were other things. Adultery in their eyes. Full eyes full of adultery. Every woman these guys would see was an object for their lust. They couldn't ever turn it off. 
There is a difference between, I love this quote, between always dealing with and struggling with lust compared to cultivating it, nurturing it, and acting on it. These guys cultivated it, nurtured it, and act on it. Daring and bold to get drunk at communion and to hit on women and seduce them in the home fellowship group with the communion. Now, my friends, you could say, oh, I get why there's a fiery denunciation and why God would say the blackest night of eternal darkness is reserved for them. Well, if you tell me what you just told me, then I'm like, okay, I, I kind of understand God's wrath against somebody, not only a layman, they were reverend so-and-so, which brought it to a whole new level. So Peter and Jude call them blots and blemishes at these communion home fellowship groups. He says, you know what? They're like stains. Picture Christianity, a beautiful white garment, like a wedding dress. And he says, you know what these guys are, Reverend so-and-so? They are big, ugly, nasty, soiled stain on Christianity. And it really makes sense. It's crazy, though. Think about it. Calling them ble uh, blemishes and blots. Christ the Lamb, without blemish, his whole purpose was to wash Christians clean and to present us without blemish or blot before the throne of grace. These guys' actions, even from behind the pulpit, are exactly counter to who Christ is, holy and without spot himself, and who Christ is making his people, the whole purpose. So here they are in Jesus' name, creating a big, ugly, embarrassing stain on the garment of Christianity. Now, embarrassing, of course, that's the point. They're an embarrassment. I dribbled coffee one time on my way to work at a college where I was teaching. I had to stand up before, I don't know, five classes with 30 kids in each class, 150 students, all day long. I had a white shirt on. I, I dribbled coffee onto the white shirt, and then I had to go to work. I was too far, too conquered to turn around. And do you know, that's embarrassing. There's only so much you can hold in front of you, <laughs> you know? You can make it into the teacher's workroom, but then, you know, the hand has to come down, you know? It's only so long you can be scratching like that. It's an embarrassment, and he says, these men are embarrassing. They're humiliating. They make people turn away and go, ah, that is ugly. Man, come on. The Holy Ghost told me, I'm quoting a famous one, the Holy Ghost told me to kick you in the head. And then, folks, when I kicked her in the head, she fell out under the power of God, and she was gloriously healed. And this man, in a stadium filled with people nodding and applauding, then said that he often has to slap the old people across the face to receive healing in Jesus' name. Then I can give you the YouTube clip if you'd like, because I just watched it. 
to refresh a little of the vigor that I'm feeling. He said, I slapped one woman across the face. The power of God took her stadium, filled of applauding people, stadium. The power of God took her across the stage, through a bolted door, off its hinges, past the people who were preparing snacks for our fellowship, and she was gloriously healed. People applauding in a stadium. Stain. That channel, with a few exceptions, is a blot and a blemish on Christianity. When I look at that, that channel, I pray, God, blind the eyes of anybody seeking the truth and they think that this is Christianity. It's unbelievable. Men in black robes who destroy little boys in a church building. Men who steal widows' pensions in Jesus' name so that they can buy a yacht for themselves. Men who pronounce a man on his wedding day a blessing, you may kiss your husband. Big, ugly, embarrassing stains on the Christian world. From unbridled lust, he returns to unmitigated greed. Verse 14, they are experts in greed. The word experts there is uh, where we get the word gymnasium. It means they, they train in how to rip people off. They're, they have a disciplined approach. There's a guy you can also Google, uh, his college friend. He had an $80 million ministry. His college friend went on um, one of those shows that exposes ministries like that. And he said, we were sitting around. We went to one of those revivals. He was imitating them. And he said, I could do that better than them. And he said, I could make more money than them. And so he bought some books on self-help and these kinds of things. He, he laid it all out. It, he trained to do what he was doing. This is what he's talking about right here. They're trained in greed. Greed here means it's an unbridled desire for more and more things, things you have no right to, things you have no need of. These men had schooled themselves in desiring forbidden things and how to get them. And so this brings Peter's mind, who just talked about brute beasts, back to the poster child, the prototype the father of all those who would, uh, uh, for uh, profit, say whatever you wanted them to say, and that would be Balaam. Here's a paraphrase of 15 through 16. These men have taken the same road as Balaam of old, for Balaam was about the money, no matter how he'd have to get it. But even his donkey had more spiritual sense than he did. And so let's talk about this. It's in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24, if you want to read the Balaam story. But in a nutshell, uh, Balaam was a prophet. He was a soothsayer. He was like a psychic, a sorcerer. He had spiritual power. <clears throat> and the king of Moab saw Israel advancing to Canaan. Israel asked, <clears throat> excuse me, nicely, if they could go through, King of Moab said, no can do. And so the King of Moab thought, you know what? They've done pretty well up to here. So I'm going to hire this evangelist, psychic, sorcerer, to say what I want him to say. And Balaam said, no problem. 
He said, I, I'll come out. I, I probably can't do it. I don't know. But in his heart, God knows he's on his way to go help the king of Moab by cursing God's people. How daring, how bold, how senseless, how brute animal is that? Yes, I'll put a curse on God's people. So he gets on his donkey and he goes to the king of Moab. But in the middle of the uh, road, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, who is Jesus Christ pre-incarnate, with a drawn sword. The donkey thinks this is a bad idea <clears throat> and exits into a field. Balaam is throwing a fit, kicking her, kicking her, prodding her, and the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. And the animal, the donkey, and I prefer the King James word for that right now, but the animal, <laughs> the animal says to the man, uh, boss, have I ever done anything like this to you before? I mean, shouldn't you be listening to me right now? And she's trying to say, look out. And the Lord says, he reveals himself to Balaam. And the Lord says, you know what? Had she not turned, I would have killed you in a heartbeat. And I would have spared her. Because the donkey gets it. But the rider of the donkey doesn't. You see, and so that's what he's talking about here. <clears throat> you know, um, there's a spider in our bathroom sink, this big. And I've used this before because I love this story. And I took my finger to eradicate this blight on humanity. And as my finger went down, at the last second, it moved out of the way. And I was, oh, that was funny. And then I tried it again, nice and slow, just like you're not getting away. Boom. It stepped out of the way again. It could sense somehow it's this big. And last night I Googled, does a spider have a brain? Because I don't know where you would fit a brain in that little thing. <clears throat> it has a brain. And it brain, it brain, <laughs> its brain tells it, Big fat obstacle coming down right above, and the brain goes, move, 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 and all eight legs start to work. And eight legs gets it out of the way, and it's dodging me. Balaam, looking at the Lord of glory with a sword, he said, I'm going to go curse God's people because they're going to give me a lot of money. Finger coming down on all of them who have a conscience who know full well what they're doing, but they're daring and reckless and bold and no fear of God. A spider, the size that could fit under your fingernail, has sense. Danger's coming. It even says, Proverbs 22, 3, says, the wise sense danger and take refuge, but fools keep going and suffer for it. Let's finish the chapter, 17-22. These men... Springs without water, mist driven by a storm, blackest darkness is reserved for them. They mouth empty, boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of sinful human nature, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for a man is a slave to whatever has mastered him. 
if they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and turned their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed goes back to her wallowing in the mud. Well, chapter 3 at verse 1 starts now, dear friends, <laughs> so I just want to encourage you that as we turn the page, he is now going to uh, relent on the tirade against them and turn to us believers, and it's uh, going to be a welcome relief for us, I think. Well, the final thought, last point, Roman numeral number three, these men are empty. False teachers can't deliver on their great claims. People who follow them will be disappointed to find that their teacher teaching has no substance and no power to help them. Two brilliant metaphors there to describe them, wells without water and a morning mist, hollow and unstable, all blow and no show. Uh, so the first one, wells without water. Um, in the Middle East, in arid ancient times, in arid desert places like Israel, um, to find a spring, to find a well is, a, is exciting. And to go to that spring or well and then find it uh, bone dry and empty of the water is a real disappointment. And this is who they are. They have great promises. Jesus says, on the contrary, those who abide in my word and my teaching come to me will never be thirsty. Jesus said, anyone who drinks of the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Um, they can't deliver. They're a, a golf course without holes a Japanese restaurant without sushi. They are a Ferrari with no engine and a wedding without a kiss. They are ATM machines without... Very good. A NASCAR race without... Cars. Cars. Baskin Robbins without... Ice cream. We could go on and on. I just got carried away. I have about 20 of them. The point is... You're not going to get what you think you were going to get. And if it's salvation, then I, you know, I could cry about the sushi thing. What? No sushi? Oh, yeah, we don't have sushi here. Yeah, that would be disappointing. But if you wake up and you say eternal life and God goes, excuse me, we never met. Depart from me, you evil worker of iniquity. But, but he, yeah, you knew. You believed it. It's willful ignorance. We can't always blame the false teachers for somebody who ends up uh, in a crisis eternity because along the line, their conscience will bear witness. This guy's lying and telling me what I want to hear, and I willfully am buying it. And so, you know, they're mist, they're unstable, without substance. Have you ever tried to grab the fog? I mean, there's nothing there. Smoke and mirrors is what he's saying. So 
They may be hollow and they may uh, be without substance, but they're popular. Verse 18 and 19, I'll paraphrase for you, just listen. People are drawn to these men with their grand ideas who appeal to our lusts and our sinful passions. They go after people who are trying to make positive changes in their lives. Uh, they say, here's the way to freedom, as they themselves are prisoners of their own sin. And so really he's talking about people who would uh, look for people who are morally inclined and those who are seeking to make changes. And so where do you find people like that? You find them in the church. So that they would go to the church and bring out a more appealing message in the church to bring converts away from the congregation and to them instead. So they're saying, hey, it's all about being enlightened, man. God is a God of love. So it really doesn't matter what you do in your body, it's temporary. That's a Gnostic thought. The grace of God covers everybody, man. God made you this way. It's okay. You just need to love one another. There's no hell, you know, you, no moral accountability. They were saying, hey, won't God work all things together for good? That Doesn't all things include your sinning? So let us sin so that God can bring all good things from it. Are you saved by grace or by works? By grace, okay? So it's, like, it's okay. And that's what people wanted to hear. And the other side of that was uh, adding to God's word. Why don't you uh, just speak into existence the financial need that you need because the gospel is all about you and living your best life now. So it was attractive. He says that they appeal to these people. Uh, it's an inviting message. And then they'd say, come to the light, and they go home to sex, drugs, and rock and roll themselves. And so he says, watch out for these kinds of guys. You shall know them by their fruit, meaning just watch how they live. If they live immorally, uh, they can't possibly be representing a God of moral purity. And finally, <clears throat> it's not as if they don't know what they're doing. It says, to make matters worse, some of them knew about the Lord at least and had come out of a sinful lifestyle and had started on the right path, but for whatever reason, they have turned. And so Peter's saying, when an apparent sound teacher veers off into immorality in a false gospel, it may be a sign that they never really knew the Lord at all. So Peter uses two graphic examples to close out the chapter. Two unclean animals, a dog and a pig. Now, when we think of dogs, we think of man's best friend. But when Jews of that day thought about dogs, they thought about dogs of Tijuana, the street dogs. And so two unclean animals. He says, number one, uh, of these men who started out good, they looked right, they said the right words, they talked about Jesus, they even evidenced of some kind of Christian fruit in their lives, and for all intents and purposes, they, they look like Christians, but these two Proverbs will tell you they may have looked like Christians, but they never were. According to these two Proverbs, check this out. I mean, number one, a dog gets rid of poisonous contents 
but because it's senseless, it goes back ready to ingest, um, sniffs around. That would be like an adulterer who gets caught. He loses the wife, the kids. He's paying alimony. Somehow he wins her back by the grace of God. He repents, whatever. A few years later, he's sniffing around porn sites again. He's chatting. He's going places he shouldn't go. He's doing, he's sniffing. He's back at the scene. And what does that tell you? It tells you the heart was untouched. Something outward happened, but something inward is still remains the same. The second one is about a pig. And, well, for fun, uh, I went to E. Howe, all right? Have you ever been to E. Howe? E. Howe to do something. On, and it explains, you know, how to do whatever. Well, in this case, I plugged in how to prepare a pig for a 4-H show. And, and here's what you have to do. Talking about washing a pig on the outside, all right? Number one, if you're going to show your pig, you must wash your pig using mild soap or horse shampoo. Number two, use a soft bristle scrub brush to wash stains or tough dirt from your pig's legs and belly. Number three, shave your entire pig a few days before the show. Use a three-quarter inch guard on the pet clippers. Number four, keep in mind that it may take two to three days to clip your pig, whatever. Work slowly and gently. It says, when the animal gets tired, take a break so you both can rest. <laughs> okay, hold on. Number five, clean your pig at the show, making sure its feet are clean. Wipe all the sawdust off of the debris of the pig and its feet before you go in to show. Now, you know what? You can wash that pig and send it to a spa up in Sonoma. It talked about filing down its hooves. It says, if you use an emery board, it's very helpful. So, and I was thinking, and do you put color on those toenails too? <laughs> Honestly, and uh, put a big pink bow around its neck, right? Where does that pig want to go right after the spa day? It wants to dive right back into the mud. Uh, these men, the Bible says, never had an inward, heart, spiritual transformation. Something that Jesus says, without, you cannot go to heaven. You must be born again. That means the Holy Spirit comes in. You are a new creation in Christ. It doesn't mean that you never struggle with old pig issues, sorry, or all old dog issues. We struggle against those things, but now we have a new nature. And as we give way to that new nature, we don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And so that's his point, is just that these guys really... They looked good, but they never got touched on the inward. 